Take your Bibles this morning and open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're continuing this morning to look at that very famous passage of Scripture called the Love Chapter. We're doing so as part of a short topical series entitled A Healthy Body, where we're looking at what it means to be a healthy church member. This is not our normal practice, as you guys who are regulars here know. We normally preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, but occasionally we do break away, like we are right now, uh, to focus in on a specific topic. So, so far as we've looked at healthy church membership, we started by looking at the nature of the church. We looked at Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. And we saw that Jesus is the, the, the builder and he is the owner. He is the architect of his church. Then we looked at the purpose of the church in 1, Corinthians 3, I mean, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, where we saw the church is the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And we saw that part of what the reason for writing that book was so that we might know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God, meaning we know how to treat one another within the body of Christ. And that sort of led me into talking about how there are 59 one another passages in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. 59 passages that tell us how we are to treat one another, how we are to care for one another in the body, in the church. So two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, where we saw that the foundational one another is that we are members of one another, meaning we are united to Christ by faith and thereby we are united to one another. So we need each other. And we cannot have a sinful attitude, a sinful inward focus of underestimating our importance to the body or of overestimating our importance to the body. And then we began our look at the 59 one another's by focusing on the biggest one, loving one another. And that's why we're in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Now, before we get to today's text, I need, a, I need a volunteer to help me out this morning. I need a volunteer kid who really likes chocolate. Ooh, see, I had no volunteers, and all of a sudden, I had volunteer. A.T., you like chocolate, right? No, he's, he, he actually doesn't like chocolate, if you know A.T. So let me find someone that likes chocolate. Have a young man right there, come on up here. All right. Now, what, what's your name? Say that again. Okay, I still didn't catch it. Leavitz? Leavitz. Leavitz. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try, to, try to get that right. I'm just going to call you G. All right, come here. All right. Okay, I've got two candy bars here. You're licking those lips. All right. And what I want to do is a taste test between these two candy bars. You're going to tell me which one tastes the best. Now you're cracking the knuckles, licking the lips. You are, you are ready to go. I'm going to start with this with the gold wrapper, okay? We're going to, if I can get it open here. All right. Okay, we're going to taste this. All right. There you go. I want you to, yay, all right. I want you to eat that for me. Take a big bite of that. Is it good? (laughs) What's wrong? You ain't cracking those knuckles anymore. You're not licking those lips anymore. Well, why? He's saying, why? Why? Does that not taste good? Do you need to spit that out? Yeah. I wasn't planning for that. Hold on. Turn around. All right, here you go. <laughs> All right, there's the order of worship. All right, sorry. Okay, here, tell you what, I was prepared for that because I had the water up here. Here, here you want to rinse your mouth out? Just take a swig of that. Okay. I'm sorry about that. I've got, a, I've got another one here. Do you want to you try this one? Are you sure? <laughs> All right. Here we go. All right, now try that. Mmm. There you go. That's good, huh? All right. Okay, you know what the difference was between, well, actually, first of all, it was a taste test. Which candy bar was better? This one? You almost pointed at that one. Because I'm going to give you whichever one you want at the end here. This, you want this one. Look at those. <laughs> Woo. All right, now this one. Right, hold on. Hold on. And by the way, you have to get permission but from your parents back there before you can even somewhat eat this thing, all right? So, please, not now. All right, now. Now, this one was better. Do you know what the difference is between that one and this one? Because this one is a silver wrapper and that one is gold. <laughs> this one's a silver wrapper. That one's a gold. I don't think that affects the taste. But do you, you know what this one has that this one does not have? Any ideas? Better taste, right. Here, tell you what, I want you to take this, go sit back down. Okay, you can take the water as well. Go sit back down. Don't eat that before lunch. 
And I'll tell you what the difference is between that candy bar that that young man that G has right there that he's going to enjoy this afternoon and this other candy bar. I bet some of y'all can guess. I've done this illustration before. What? That one had something the other one doesn't have. You know what it was? Sugar. Sugar. I think Vera was on the bad end of that illustration once before as well. That one, this one has, or this one right here has no sugar, and that one has sugar. That makes all the difference with a with a chocolate candy bar, whether it has sugar or not. Chocolate is pretty yucky. It's bitter, really, without sugar. And that reminds me of what we learned last week, namely that our use, the use of our gifts and our talents and our abilities in the body, in the church, is useless without what? Without love. Without love. Matter of fact, without love, we'll end up being people who are bitter. We'll end up being people who use our gifts in a way that makes much of us. And we get bitter when we're not recognized for that. Or we get bitter when other people have gifts that wish we had. And so last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 3. And we saw these three things that boldly and eloquently speaking the truth without love proclaims nothing. No matter how well and accurately you speak the truth, if you don't have love backing that up, it proclaims nothing. Number two, confidently and accurately knowing deep truth without love attains nothing. So no matter how much theological depth of knowledge you have, if you don't have love, you have nothing. And then finally, generously and sacrificially living out the truth without love gains nothing. And I really focused in on what that means to gain that we should find great joy in truly loving one another because we gain because it draws us into a deeper relationship with God. So love, like the sugar in that candy bar, is absolutely essential. But what does it look like? That's the question. We know that it's essential, but what does it look like? Love can be an awfully hard thing to define, especially in our day and age. So Love is necessary, but practically, how does it work? Well, that's what the rest of 1 Corinthians is all about. So please stand now as we read the whole chapter again, even though I'll just be focusing on the middle part of the text today. I'm going to read the whole love chapter, and then we'll focus in really starting at verse 4. But we're going to begin right now reading at verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now we come to you and we ask that you would Cleanse us of our sinful dispositions, our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions. Lord, forgive us. Just reading verses 4 through 7, surely just reading that stirs up conviction in our hearts. How many of us have been impatient just this morning? So, Father, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and now give us ears to hear what your word has to say and grant me a mouth to speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The document that you guys, most of you in here, have signed says this. 
Having received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and having been baptized and being in agreement with Harbin's Community Baptist Church doctrine, missions, and vision, I now feel led by the Holy Spirit to unite with the Harbin's Community Baptist Church family. In doing so, I commit myself to God and to other members for the glory of God and for the sake of His kingdom to do the following. I will covenant to the communion of the church by attending faithfully, by worshiping with all my heart, by praying regularly for the church, by cheerful and regular giving to support the ministry of the church, by developing a lifestyle of personal and family worship, by actively striving to grow by God's grace and holy Christ-likeness, by seeking God's help to abstain from any and all drugs, food, drink, and practices which bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. I will covenant to the community of the church by following the elder leadership of the church, by acting in love toward other members, by aiding others who are in sickness or distress, by joining a community group, discipleship group, or Bible study group, and faithfully participating in it, by refusing to gossip and keeping myself free of harmful speech, by warmly welcoming those who visit the church, by striving to resolve conflict biblically. I will covenant to the commission of the church by using my gifts and passions to sacrificially serve the body, by seeking the salvation of my family members and doing all I can to see my family grow spiritually by doing all I can to be equipped for the work of the ministry, by praying for and striving to develop a servant's heart, by being a witness of Jesus Christ in every area of my life, by actively inviting the unchurched to worship and fellowship, by praying for and participating with the church to share the gospel both locally and globally. Of course, you should know that document. That is our church covenant. And that document is based upon the 59 one another's that I've been talking about that are found in the New Testament. Now, if you'll recall, I've put those 59 one another's as we now begin to look at them into four general categories. There's a lot of one another statements, but they fit into four general categories. The first is loving one another, loving one another. And that's why we're here in 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, I was going to finish talking about loving one another today, but let me just tell you in advance uh, I had to split the sermon in two. I couldn't get everything into the sermon today that I wanted to get into the sermon that I felt needed to be into the sermon. So we're actually going to talk about love another week. And so that pushes my schedule off a little bit. I mentioned the schedule last week of what I want to do. So, so last week we talked about loving one another. Today we'll talk about loving one another. And next week we'll also talk about loving one another. It is the biggest category of one another's. And then on November 5th we'll talk about serving one another. And then on November 12th, we'll talk about being at peace with one another. And then November 19th, I'll preach on teaching one another, which I'd originally wanted to finish the series before November 19th, since November 19th will be my final uh, sermon here. But I think teaching one another is a good note to end on, as that has been my primary role here at Harbin's, is to teach the church. And so we'll, it'll be my final exhortation to you to teach one another the truth. Now, in reality, love, love is the one, one another that fuels all of the other one another's. Okay, I, I mentioned earlier that being members of one another is the foundational truth that we learned in 1 Corinthians 12. Well, if that's true, if that's the foundational truth, then loving one another is the structure. It's the framework that all the other one another's fix themselves to. As we'll see as we go through this passage that you'll see a bunch of other one another's surfacing. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 23 for a reason. Matter of fact, you see all of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned here in these characteristics of love. So last week I gave you the structure of 1 Corinthians 13. I want to remind you of that real quickly. The structure of this chapter is first the requirement of love, which we looked at last week. Second, the characteristics of love which is what we're going to begin to look at today and we will finish looking at next week. And then also next week, I'll finish it up, I'll finish chapter 13 up by looking at the permanence of love, which is verses 8 through 13. And we're not going to spend a, a whole lot of detail there at the end. There's a lot that can be said there, but we're going to, to just cover that generally as we, as we finish out this chapter next week. Now, when it comes to the characteristics of love, we must see that love is so amazing. Love is so stunning. It's like a diamond, it has all these different facets. Each characteristic is a different facet on that diamond. So everything we're reading in verses 4 through 7, there's 15 different facets of love. All of them are beautiful. All of them are essential. All of them complement each other. But all of them stand alone in their uniqueness as well. 
Now again, to see how, to kind of illustrate how the other one another's relate to love, if love is like a diamond, then, then just as light, when it, when it passes through a diamond, is, is refracted to display the beautiful spectrum of colors that make up light, so too all of the other one another's can be seen, can only be seen and understood through love. So, so as, as the light is refracted and you see all the colors, that's really what love does here. We see all the other one another's. Love enables all of the other one another's to be seen and to be seen as beautiful. So encourage one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Welcome one another. Greet one another. Don't pass judgment on one another. Forgive one another. Teach one another. And on and on and on are all products of true, genuine Christian love. And you'll see many of those emerge today and next week as we look at these beautiful facets of love. So how do the 15 facets in verses 4 through 7 break down? So first, first of all, in verses 3 through 5, there are two positive aspects, what love is, and seven negative aspects, what love is not. So there's nine total there in those first few verses. Two positive, seven negative. And so I've called that first section there, the actions that mark true Christian love, verses 3 through 5. So verses 3 through 5, there's two positive aspects, seven negative aspects to make up the first nine, and those are the actions that mark true Christian love. And then in verse 6, we have a contrast between a negative attitude of love and a positive attitude of love. So those are two, two more facets. And so basically I've labeled those the attitude that marks true Christian love, verse 6. And then we have... Verses, uh, verse 7. And, and the text sort of builds to a crescendo here. And we have four final facets. Four positive statements about love where Paul uses the phrase all things. And so we'll round out those 15 facets by finally looking at the abundance that marks true Christian love. So let's start here in verses 3 through 5. The actions that mark true Christian love. Now the reason I chose the word actions is because these facets here of love are all in the verbal form. You may not realize that, but they are all in the verbal form. This doesn't come across in our English translations. Instead, the facets look primarily to us as we read it here like adjectives. For example, the first one, love is patient. But in reality, that's not an adjective. The word patient is a verb. So it really it could be translated, love waits patiently. The fact that each facet is in verbal form is communicating something to us. Namely, that love must be something we put into action. It means that 1 Corinthians 13 is aiming at more than just our temperament. You see, if we just think about these as adjectives, we think, well, okay, if I just have the right temperament, then I'm doing the right thing. But this is not aiming at our temperament. It's aiming at our personal conduct, our everyday behavior. It's aiming at the words that actually come out of our mouth, the actions that we participate in. It's aiming at the way we live, not just the way we think. And that's where the rubber hits the road. Now, even though I'm, I'm splitting this sermon into two, we're still going to walk through these facets fairly quickly. I really had to limit what I wrote on each facet. I had to go back and really edit it down. And Because if you just do the math, there's 15 facets. Let's say I just spent 10 minutes on each facet alone. That's 150 minutes of sermon material. So even with two sermons... I'm, going to have to, I'm not going to be able to give each one of these the depth that it deserves. This could easily be a, a 17 or even a 15-part sermon series just going through these facets. So let's don't wait any longer. Let's jump right into the first facet, the actions that mark, the first of these actions that mark true Christian love. So remember, there are two positives and then there are seven negatives. The first two positive actions of love are simply this, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Patient. Literally, in the Greek, means to suffer longly. Hence, the familiar translation, long-suffering. Remember, it is a verb. The Greek word means a gentle and calm response that love generates us in us when we are being mistreated. It specifically refers to our response to the kind of sufferings and, and uh, pressures and difficulties or injuries that are caused by people, not circumstances. It refuses to allow hardship that others have brought upon us to lead us into anger. It keeps us from anger. James chapter 1, verse 19, James, the Apostle James says this, Know this, my beloved, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to 
anger. If we're going to follow that, if we're going to do that, then this patient love is necessary. James goes on to say, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with, and this is the key word, meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. From that James passage, you see that being slow to anger is closely related to the concept of meekness. The meek person does not impatiently take matters into his or her own hands, but restfully trusts God who judges justly. A meek person is willing to be injured for the sake of the body, is willing to suffer harm for the sake of peace. More than that, a meek person is willing to do so repeatedly, over and over and over. Therefore, he or she is long-suffering. So patience and meekness is only valid and true in our life to the degree that it's tested, right? So, so I know you guys probably hate it. I mean, we've talked about this before. We usually live at Harbin's. We live what we preach. So get ready. Love is patient. And, and our patience and our meekness is only, only valid to the degree that it's actually tested. If you say you're a meek and you're a patient person, but you've never actually been mistreated in the way that requires meekness and requires patience, how do you know? God will allow you, he will allow us to undergo difficult situations and deal with difficult people. Why? To test our patience. And maybe just little situations in life. Maybe not just a difficult person, but maybe just people in general or life in general or your kids will test your patience. And I was convicted just as I'm writing this sermon and I'm snapping at the kids, kids, be quiet, I'm writing about patience here. Why are we patient? Because God is patient toward us. Right? Every time I'm tempted to get impatient with my kids or my spouse or with anybody, I'm reminded of how long-suffering God is towards me and how often I continue to repeat the same failures over and over and over and over, yet He continues to love me. Exodus 34, 16, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Ultimately, we are patient because our God is patient. His character is one of long-suffering. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And listen to the patience and meekness of our Lord Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 23. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We are patient because he is patient. We are to be patient as he is patient. And that is only possible if we are united to Christ by faith, whereby his divine patience and meekness is in us. It operates in us. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says at the beginning of that chapter. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. How could Paul deal with a church in Corinth? Only by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Our union with Christ gives us access to Christ's meekness, which enables other one anotherness. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians 3, 12, put, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See how, see how that second positive facet, namely that love is kind, see how it fits into this as well? Kindness is simply the other side of the coin. Patience is when we refrain from doing something, we refrain from retaliating or taking matters into our own hands. But kindness is what we go out of our way to do. Patience is passive. Kindness is active. 
The word literally means here to do good. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Kindness is the necessary action that accompanies patiently and meekly leaving things in God's hands. It is an action. In that Colossians 3 passage we were just read that we are to put on kindness. It is to be deliberate. Perhaps you've heard the phrase random acts of kindness, right? I agree with what I heard another pastor say. I don't like that phrase. Because our acts of kindness shouldn't be random. They should be well thought out and planned. Kindness isn't just something we do on occasion. Like we're going to go out and pass water to people in the park. Kindness is something we do to each other. It should be every day. Well planned out, well thought out acts of kindness. Especially to those whom we might not get along with. To those who have mistreated us. Romans 12, 4 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give, give thought, give thought. In other words, think it out, plan it. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, verse 19, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Again, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, with kindness, with doing good. 1 Peter 3, 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And of course, we know Jesus' words, Jesus six thirty five, But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful, and the evil. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, to return good for good and evil for evil, the heathens knew this, and publicans will do this. To render evil for good is the property of devils and men inspired by them. But to do good for evil and to overcome evil with good, this is proper only to Christians. And again, our kindness is the outflow of God's kindness to us. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, as we continue to walk through these, these facets of love, we now move into some negative actions. So let's look at the rest of verse 4. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Envy literally means to strongly desire something. Sometimes this word is meant positively, such as in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, where Paul tells them to desire the higher gifts. But the contrast here, in the context here, I should say, this refers to a negative type of jealous desire. It refers to being envious of other people. Envy breeds displeasure with how God is working in our lives and leads us to covet what God is doing in the lives of others. If we are envious, we cannot do the one another's of Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do you realize that is impossible if we have envy? You will not be able to rejoice with those who rejoice. And you'll be unable to weep with those who weep. You can be envious over another person's family, over another person's job, or another person's giftedness, or recognition perhaps that they got, or another person's blessings, or circumstances, you name it. In our narcissistic age, we're envious about everything. And what feeds that? Well, there's a lot of things that feeds it, but one of the things that feeds it is simply social media. We get on Facebook and we immediately get stirred up to envy. And envy destroys peace in the church, James 4.1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. That's envy. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. That's envy. So you fight and quarrel. Envy destroys peace in the church because it, it turns our eyes in on ourselves. And friends, the key to killing envy is one word. It's contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness without contentment, with contentment, I should say, is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And contentment on all different fronts, not just when it comes to material blessings, is actually a mark of spiritual maturity. 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content 
with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Perhaps the resistance to envy and the presence of contentment is seen in no better place than the life of John the Baptist. John chapter 3, beginning verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. That's referring to Jesus. And John answered, and this is important to contentment, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And listen to what John the Baptist says. He must increase, but I must decrease. Of course, he's talking there of Christ, and that should be our attitude towards Christ. But do we have that attitude towards others in the church? Let them increase and let me decrease. Love does not envy, but instead, it, with happy contentment and sure confidence in God, it rejoices in the success of others. It rejoices in what God is doing in others. And thus, because it is focused on others, it does not make much of itself. It does not do the next negative thing. It does not boast. Boast here is a very picturesque word. It, it could be translated windbag, to be puffed up. And again, Paul is speaking about actions here. Our demeanor shouldn't be one that draws attention to us. Our conversations and our stories don't have to always turn back to us. We don't always have to have the last word. Our actions and especially our words reveal how much we think about ourselves. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks or the fingers tweet. Of course, boasting or bragging is the ugly twin brother of what we see next, that love is not arrogant. Boasting and arrogance are the polar opposites of love. Love builds others up. Love puts the needs of others above our own. Love is humble, and it cannot brag. Why? Because love enables one to see that everything he or she has is from God. What did John the Baptist say in that passage, verse 27? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. There is the key to contentment. There is the key to killing boasting and arrogance. All things come from God. Grace has been given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift, according to Ephesians 4, 7. According to Christ's gift, that's the measure of, of grace has been given to us. We also read, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, that our gifts are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So there is no room for inward, self-focused boasting. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31 let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, and listen to this, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And all these negative facets work together. If someone is envious and boastful and arrogant, he or she will be a fault finder. It's an interesting study to go back and look at 1 Corinthians 4. Just look at 1 Corinthians as a whole and just see what their problems were. But in 1 Corinthians 4, you'll see that this was exactly the problem in Corinth. They were fault finders. They had envy and they were boastful. And that led them to being critical and judgmental of one another. They acted as if they had the ability to look into others' hearts. And that led them to legalism whereby they propounded ideas and even put extra biblical burdens upon each other. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul urged them not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, and then later in Romans 14, he condemns an arrogant attitude that unnecessarily binds the consciences of others, but at the same time, he condemns an arrogant attitude that abuses one's Christian freedom at the expense of others. And so we end up judging and despising one another when we're envious and boastful and arrogant. Romans 14, 3 is, let, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
So I want to read from James 3 real quick, and let's just see how these, these, these things, this arrogance, this boastfulness, how it damages the body of Christ. James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual. Listen to this, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We cannot be at peace with one another if we're envious, if we're boastful, if we're arrogant people. Oh, Harbin's. May God kill these sins in us. And may our union with Christ produce the humility we need. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. You have access to this. If you're a Christian, you're united to Christ, this is yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Continuing in Philippians 2, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So back to today's text, continuing to look at the negative facets. Love is not, let's go to verse 5 now, rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Or resentful. Rude. This word means to act unbecomingly. It means to be offensive or to have bad manners. It's the attitude of not taking into account how our actions or our words negatively affect someone else. It is an insensitivity to the feelings of others. It is tactless. It is unseemliness. Sometimes our spouse and our children, the people we know best, end up being receiving the brunt of our rudeness. Maybe in a sarcastic joke or in an apathetic response. Rudeness is a general, inconsiderate attitude towards others. It is selfish to the core. In Jerry Bridges, in his book called Respectable Sins, he says this rudeness, this inconsiderate attitude, is one of these respectable sins that we just seem to overlook. He says this in that book. The inconsiderate person never thinks about the impact of his actions on others. The person who is always late and keeps others waiting is inconsiderate. The person who talks loudly on his cell phone to the disturbance of others nearby is selfishly inconsiderate. So is the teenager who leaves her mess on the kitchen counter for someone else to clean up. Anytime we do not think about the impact of our actions on others, we are being selfishly inconsiderate. So how did this play out in Corinth? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, we read the best demonstration of this, this rudeness that had infected them. It's when, how they observe the Lord's Supper in verse 21 says this, for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? A rudeness, an inconsiderate attitude towards others is a despising of others. But our problem at Harbin's, well, it's not that we're trying to be the first one to the communion table. And I don't think anyone's getting drunk on Juicy Juice. But we still have to fight inconsiderate attitudes. So having already stepped on my own toes in preparing this, I'm, I'll just say a few things. How might we be infected with rudeness and inconsiderate behavior? Let me tell you, it is rude and inconsiderate to show up to church late. It's rude. It's inconsiderate of everyone else. It's inconsiderate of those who have prepared hard for that day. To teach. You know it's inconsiderate because if you did that in your workplace, you'd be fired. It's inconsiderate and rude. It's inconsiderate and rude to get up and move around during the service. Let me just say that. That is inconsiderate and rude. I'm sorry if it's stepping on your toes. But you can go without coffee for 45 minutes and you should have peed before you came in. It's inconsiderate and rude. It doesn't take into account how I'm affecting other people around me. It's rude. Not returning emails to people and not following up. 
boy, that hits me square in the eyes. I'm awful about that. You guys have told me I'm awful about that. So even as I was preparing this, I stopped and wrote a list that's way too long of people I haven't followed up with. It's rude and inconsiderate of how it affects you when I do that or when you do that to me. It's rude and inconsiderate not to give to support the church and to sit in an air-conditioned building and on these nice chairs and just assume that someone else is going to carry that burden for me. It's rude and that's inconsiderate. I'm sure we can think of a thousand other ways that we are inconsiderate to one another. Love is the opposite of that. Love is the opposite of inconsiderate rudeness. But you see how it flows out of the previous negatives. You see, the person who has turned in on himself, the person who loves himself more than others, could care less about the feelings of others. He could care less about giving offense. True Christian love is the opposite of that. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32 give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I try to please everyone in everything I do not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved therefore true love continuing with the negative aspects here in verse 5 does not insist on its own way love is not looking out for number one but looking out for others if the call to not being boastful and arrogant keeps judgmentalism in check, this facet here of love keeps our Christian freedom in check. Let me say that again. If the call for us not to be boastful and arrogant, that keeps our judgmentalism in check. This right here of not insisting on our own way, this keeps our Christian freedom in check. Too often we simply say, well, I'm free in Christ. I can do that. I'm not a legalist. But well, we should be free. We should avoid legalism. But our main aim isn't to be as free as we can be. Our main aim is to build up the body. That's why you're here, to build up the body. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful. Paul, that's, a, that's an ultimate statement of freedom right there. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then he says this in the very next verse. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. After that Romans 14 passage on Christian freedom, Paul writes this. Romans 15 verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 22, we read Paul was willing to set aside his freedoms because of his loving desire to see people come to Christ and to grow in Christ. So we see that the destroyer of irresponsible freedom and repressive legalism in the church is love. Let me say that again. The destroyer of irresponsible freedom and repressive legalism in the church is love. And Paul continues in verse 5. Love is not irritable or resentful. Irritable simply means to be easily provoked, like I was when I was preparing my sermon last night. This one hits home. Friends, being irritable isn't a trait. It's a sin. That's just who I am. I just have a short fuse. Well, guess what? That short fuse is a sin. Ephesians 4.29, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Remember, again, these facets are not adjectives but verbs. So we must actively fight against irritability and anger. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Why are we to love in that sort of way that, that we're called to there in Titus 3.1? Because what it says here in verse 3, For, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We are not to be irritable and stirred up to anger because of our own Father in heaven who has been so patient with us. 
The opposite of irritability is gentleness, which in the Greek is closely related to that word kindness. So I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and following. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's the same word, kindness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. Paul goes on to say that love cannot be resentful. I think the ESV translates this poorly. Paul in other places uses this verb here, the same verb, uh, in the sense that of reckoning righteousness to a believer. It's a word connected with the keeping of accounts. It's it's an accounting term. Noting something down, reckoning it to someone. So the translation resentful, although true, is not as helpful as other English translations would say this. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Certainly keeping a record of wrongs makes one uh, resentful. But the idea that Paul is conveying here is that love does not take notice of every evil thing that people do and hold it against them. Love takes no account of evil. It does not harbor a sense of injury. Love is willing to overlook sin when it can be overlooked. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This does not mean that we don't confront sin that needs to be confronted. Damaging, habitual sin must be confronted. But some sins are minor Minor offenses and, and are more acted out of ignorance than intentionality. And many, many, many sins can simply be covered up by love. How much damage occurs in the church when minor offenses are made much of? And this requires great discernment. It requires discernment to let go and keep no record of wrongs. How many marriages are damaged because one or both spouses get historical? Not hysterical, but historical. How many churches are harmed for the very same reason? If we don't keep a record of wrongs, then we won't be tempted to pay back evil with evil. And because we don't want to keep that record, we'll make sure the sun doesn't go down on our anger. Keeping no record of wrong is the only way we can do what Ephesians 4, verses 31, and following calling us to do. Let all, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We don't have that kind of love, bitterness, like in that chocolate bar, just comes and settles in to our life. Let me just conclude by reminding us of a couple of, a couple of things. First of all, I want to remind you of the parable that Jesus told of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 8, verse 23 and following. This man was a bitter record keeper of wrongs. You remember the story. He had been forgiven a massive, huge Debt that he can never even in a million lifetimes pay off. He was released from that debt by his master. But then when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Meaning he had kept a record of what was owed to him. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And listen to what he said. This brings us back to the very first facet. He said, have Patience with me, and I'll repay you. You see how all this is connected together? Of course, we know the servant. The servant wasn't patient. He wanted those many wrongs that he had kept record of righted. And therefore, he proved himself not to be one who had been forgiven. How easy it is to forget that our debt has been wiped clean, that our sins have been sunk into the depth of the sea, that that they have been removed as far as the east is from the west. How easily we forget while we keep accounts. We keep a ledger of what everyone else has done to us. And so this is a good place to end with a reminder of God's love for us. Not only should that motivate our love, but it fuels our love. If we've been united to Christ, we have the love of God in us. We should become conduits of God's love. I used to use an illustration in children's church back when I taught children uh, of a difference between a, a pipe and a bowl. I said, God calls on you to be a pipe where his love flows in and flows out towards others. Whereas if, if you're a bowl, that bowl fills up and the water just gets stagnant. The love you receive from God, you don't even recognize, you don't even know that it's fresh because it just becomes stagnant in your life because you're not a conduit of God's love to others. So let me close with these two passages. 1 John 4, 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. We live through him. 
And this is love, not that we loved, have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And then finally, Romans 5, beginning verse 6. For while we, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received reconciliation. And so it's because of that love that God has for us, not just as an example, but that we have that love. We've been united to Christ. The very love of Christ is in us. We should be able to love our brothers. So this morning, I just want to ask you if you're here and you're not a believer, these things, these facets of love are impossible for you. You cannot be the person 1 Corinthians 13 calls for you to be. You need to see that according to Romans 5, you're still an enemy of God. You're still pushing back at him. It's time for you, the first step you can take today is to simply recognize your rebellion, turn from your sin, confess Jesus as Lord, recognize that he went to the cross to take the punishment for the sins of people like you and me. And that he rose again victorious over that death, victorious over our sin, so that all who are united to him can now have life, his very life in us, his righteousness counted to us. And for those who are believers here this morning, I know this sermon may seem a little disjointed because we're having to end it right here. You can see I've already gone long, and I'm just, I only did like three verses. There's so much more to say. So don't stop here. Explore God's words to how you can be the loving person God has called you to be. Ask God to reveal in your life these areas where you have exhibited these negative facets of love and where you need to exhibit these positive facets of love. Let's pray.